bizarre. One of my favorite cartoonists, Bizarro Comics, has a cartoon of a stage and a person in the spotlight on the stage meditating with three people looking like they're judges. And it's the show is called So You Think You Can Meditate. <laughs> so we're going to all sign you up for your audition for the So You Think You Can Meditate show. So maybe some of you thought when you came to the retreat, you thought you could meditate. <laughs> After a few days, you're thinking, I don't know if I can, <laughs> I'm not sure if I know much about this stuff. <laughs> it seems simple from one perspective, right? And then not so easy from another perspective. And when we have to look at our mind all day in the sitting and walking meditation practice, we get to see that... Um, yeah, it's, it's a practice. That's why it's called practice. It takes work, it takes skill, it takes uh, many qualities and patience. And it's actually a lovely uh, piece from the poet Rilke. And he's talking to an, a keen young poet. And on, he's talking about the process of making art, which is often a, a metaphor for meditation. And Rilke says... Works of art are of an infinite solitude and no means of approach as is useless as criticism. Only love can touch them. Being an artist, or I would say a meditator, means not numbering or counting, unless you're counting your breath, but ripening like a tree. It comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay before them so unconcernedly silent and vast. I learn it every day of my life, Learn it with difficulty I am grateful for. Patience and ripening are everything. Patience and ripening are everything. So, as I said at the beginning of the retreat, and I'll say now, and say when you leave, that I, I, wish, I wish for you that you have patience with yourself and your mind and your practice. Because it's, uh, it's not an easy path. And we generally take a very short-term view, you know, by Friday morning, I'm going to have deep absorption and at least first stage of enlightenment. You know. And it's, you know, it's a little unrealistic. Well, maybe it may happen, but we generally we set ourselves quite um, high standards and then inevitably fail and judge ourselves. So it's useful to take a long-range view. And since this retreat is called Essential teachings of the path, and if we think of, if we take the metaphor of the journey, the spiritual journey, the, the, the journey of Dharma practice, if we take a long-term view, um, then we can, it, it allows time for things to grow, for qualities to grow, for meditation understanding to deepen and uh, broaden. So... Um, whether this is your first retreat or your 20th retreat, uh, to see what it's like to, to, to see your practice from a long-range view. So the Dal- I, th- I think the Dal- someone asked the Dalai Lama a question about practice. He said, you know, this is a good practice. You try it for 10 years, you know, put it into, into practice, see what happens, and then after 10 years, review. See whether it's working, see if you need a little adjustment or not. And that's a very different view of practice. Rather than like, I'll try it for two weeks, okay, it's not working, try next, I'll try yoga, I'll try qigong, I'll try art, I'll try something. Right? So what would it be to have a more 
expansive view of, of both our life and our practice. Tonight I want to talk about one aspect of Dharma teachings and Dharma practice, one list of many that the Buddha talked about. And when you start seeing the, the vastness of the body of teaching the Buddha gave, you see that it's, it's a long-range view. And this particular teaching is called the five, traditionally known as the five spiritual faculties. I like to think of it as a spot, the five qualities uh, of the path that we both cultivate and develop as part of uh, walking this journey. So I'll talk about them in the context of uh, practice and retreat and, uh, uh, and also in the context of just our daily lives, how, how these broader qualities support this journey. So um, in the beginning of the retreat I talked about mindfulness and the, the prevalence of mindfulness in, 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 in contemporary culture and psychology and the mainstream media of, um, and the, the reducing of really the vastness of these practices to this idea of mindfulness is just paying attention. And maybe as you're noticing in this retreat, it's a lot more, the, the, the context and the scope of mindfulness is way more than simply paying attention. So I like to uh, reflect on the word bhavana, which is really the word that was used um, by the Buddha for meditation, which means cultivation. So we're cultivating the mind, cultivating our heart, cultivating the field of attention here. So we're farmers, really. We're, we're farming our mind. We're sowing the seed. We're cultivating the soil. So it's ripe for seeds of awakening to be planted and to sprout and to flower. So in this basket of uh, teaching called the five faculties, the five qualities, uh, the primary quality or the guiding quality is mindfulness. Uh, and again, not just mindfulness in the, in the context of attention, but really this, this aspect of mindfulness as meta-attention or as clear comprehension or the aspect of mindfulness that's a balancing quality for the mind. So one aspect of mindfulness is it, um, is it, it plays the function uh, in our mind to track uh, the, um, uh, the, the Buddha used the analogy of the gatekeeper. So in an old town, you'd have a, a man or a person at the, at the gate who'd be a gatekeeper and would be uh, tracking for who was friendly and who was uh, an adversary. And in, in a similar way, mindfulness plays in meditation. We're tracking for what's supporting skillful states of mind to arise and what supports the mind to get caught in confusion and reactivity and uh, the hindrances so in the same way mindfulness is this overarching quality in the five faculties of balancing and monitoring and tracking and, and, so, and knowing when to cultivate and when to let go. So the, the second quality, and I'm not going to say much about mindfulness because really this is the context of the whole retreat and, I, and we've, we've given it a lot of airtime and we will continue to talk about it. 
The second quality is the quality of faith, of what's called sadhar, shraddhar in Sanskrit. And this is an interesting quality because a lot of the way Buddhism has been taught uh, in the West is not so much uh, in the context of faith. If you go to Southeast Asia um, or any Buddhist country, the, the quality of faith is really central. You'll see in the way people relate to uh, the Buddha and the statues and the chanting, and it's an incredibly devotional practice. And as insight meditation teachings were brought from Asia to the West, one of the pieces that was not exactly left out but not emphasized was um, the, the the practices of faith and devotion. And uh, for myself and for many people, faith is a really central part of uh, what engages us, what makes us connect with why we're doing this. So when I, I don't think I think I told this story the other day when I was teaching down the hill in a class. Uh, when I someone asked me well, how did I get into the practice, or maybe it was in a group, and uh, I was in London. I was a punk rocker, and I was squatting these houses. Squatting is when you take over, and at the time in, in England it was legal to take over empty houses and just and set up shop uh, until you got evicted by the courts, which took a year or two. So you got a couple of years of free living. So anyhow, I was, I was doing this as a somewhat of a political act. Um, and uh, one of these houses I took over was a Buddhist housing cooperative, uh, which was unbeknownst to me at the time. And anyhow, so I got to know these very lovely people and they you know, practicing non-harming, so they didn't kick me out. They you know, let me stay and we got into some negoti- talking and negotiations and whatnot. And anyhow, they said, um, you, should, you, know, you should check out the, the, the meditation center around the corner. Maybe you'll learn something <laughs> and get out. <laughs> so I went round out of curiosity. I was in the east end of London, which was a very run-down, depressed uh, part of London at the time. And I walked into the center and I had a beautiful painting of a wind horse, which is a Tibetan um, symbol of the Dharma. And uh, was, there were a few people just milling around, working and sweeping and just taking care of the center. And I was immediately struck by their presence. There was, some, there was a kind of a, a, a clarity in their eyes, just like you're, the clarity in your eyes is, is, is waking up as you, as you sit. And there's a brightness. And there's a sense of poise and presence. And I, I didn't know what it was that they had, but I wanted it. I could see that they had some... Something, some presence, some focus, some purpose, some something. And I said, that's what I want. And so that's what actually got me hooked, was, was, was seeing, just like how we talked about looking around and, and watching other people who had more experience in a similar way. I was like, oh, I, I wanted to taste that for myself. So in the stages of faith, there's four stages of faith. There's initial faith, where you hear about the teachings, and then there's bright, and that was, that was me, them telling me about the center. Bright faith was when I was seeing it for myself, seeing it in other people. And then um, verified faith is when I started to put the teachings into practice and see for myself, oh, this works. When you pay attention and cultivate awareness and mindfulness, you, you develop awareness and clarity. And the qualities that I was told, you know, the compassion, kindness, you know, they're available if, 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 does, if you do the right practices. So that becomes verified faith when we know it from our experience. 
and then unshakable faith when it, be, when it really takes root and we know it without doubt that these practices work, that freedom is available, that the nature of the heart is compassion, whatnot. Um, and then the next, uh, th- and I was reflecting on faith, it was actually quite a lovely thing to think about faith and, and, and my journey. And, you, and as I'm talking, you might think about your own journey and, and how you got here. Because it took an act of faith to get here, especially if this is your first retreat. I know when I signed up for my first retreat, I uh, took the train to Brighton. It was, it was a place outside of Brighton in southern England. And um, I was a little f- scared, you know, anxious. In, in the early 80s, Buddhism was weird and culty and, you know, not as hip as it is now. And I got to the train station. There's a few weird characters hanging out at the train station. I thought, I bet they're going to the retreat full of weirdos, so I got the next train back home. <laughs> I never made it to the retreat. <laughs> Such was the grand start of my meditation career. <laughs> Anyhow, long story short, I get to India, and um, <laughs> uh, after about seven years of practice with a, with a, with a tradition in England, and uh, I came across my first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Timmis, who, those of you who know him, is a very um, uh, he's a powerful teacher, uh, and we, we were practicing in Bodh Gaya, which was a very beautiful place to practice because it's where the Buddha attained awakening. And I remember getting on, on the bus, getting off a long train journey and the bus ride, and seeing this stupa, which is um, a symbol of the uh, the Buddha's awakening in a certain way. And I felt just this incredible wave of, of faith, of, of devotion, like, oh, how amazing to be in the birthplace of the Dharma and it's flowering. And So anyhow, so I went on retreat with Christopher Titmus and I'd, I'd been in a tradition where um, the path, the Buddhist path was talked about in terms of lifetimes and that any kind of realization, awakening seemed like a very long, 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 arduous way away. And one of the one of the hallmarks of Christopher's teachings is, is he's pointing to the the imminence of awakening that realization is is available here and now in this moment available as the Buddha did, um, and there was something again that lit up that that possibility that it, it struck something in me that was that resonated with the truth of that that realization awakening insight is always available here and now where else could it happen. So there was another deepening level of faith. Uh, and then I went on to meet another teacher, Punjaji, who's an Advaita Vedanta teacher, um, also a lover of the Buddha, and um, was a very realized, and maybe how he spoke, did you speak about Punjaji? Not yet, he might really say, coming tomorrow, more, to more, more talk about Punjaji. Um, but a very realized teacher, and also embodied... Uh, awakening in a very human, playful way. So he was always laughing and celebrating and a lot of joy and very real. And um, again, it just inspired that sense of the possibility and also the possibility of how it, how it can look in, how it can look in any, in any way. And, and it can look, uh, it can be with a lot of expression and joy and laughter and play. Right. Unlike, you know, when you see the images, it all looks very serious and dour and poised. And, and here was this being who was very free, incredibly beautiful teachings, and also just very full human being. And it's like, wow, that's possible too. How delightful. 
So in the, the history of Buddhist teachings, uh, in the Buddhist history, is full of um, figures of transformation. Both the Buddha is a wonderful story, human being, who through his own diligence worked out his, his, his own realization. But there's stories from the Tibetan tradition of people like Milarepa, who, would, who would, um, was a sorcerer and learned black magic and um, developed um, various powers, but then used them in a, in a skillful way and um, uh, killed actually a lot of relatives during this wedding and then underwent serious um, uh, remorse and practice and, um, but through his own practice actually also attained realization. Um, so no matter where you've been or how bad you think your life has been, you know, transformation is possible you know, in any moment. And just a, just last story, um, you know, talking about the verified faith and the unshakable faith. I remember being on a retreat, a long retreat at IMS, where many of us did a three-month retreats and um, went through a very difficult, painful retreat where a lot of early trauma and pain and, and just really wretched uh, experiences came up. And it was really hard for me to practice. I actually couldn't practice. I was laying in bed for a while, just kind of re-experiencing the pain and the trauma. And what happened was my my formal practice went out the window. I couldn't I couldn't sit or, or walk or do any sort of formal what I would thought of as vipassana practice. But what remained, what qualities remained, I think, as a result of the practice I'd done for the last dozen years before that, was I was able to be with that experience of pain and trauma with awareness and compassion. And I wasn't trying to be aware and compassionate. It's just what was there as the fruit of the practice. So sometimes faith arises in the most difficult and uh, challenging of places. You know, sometimes I hear these stories of people being whisked on a gurney to the operating theater and they're panicked and the family's freaking out and then suddenly they remember the power of their practice and they just remember their breath. And that breath is the thing that, that is the through line that allows them to stay calm and steady when everything else is commotion. So we'll never, we never know when the seeds of faith and uh, really reverence for the power of this practice may arise. So and out of that faith, so as, 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 you, as you hear these stories, just, just to reflect on your own relationship to faith. You know, maybe you think of yourself as a, you know, as a, as a more... Um, uh, more sort of the scientific rationalist uh, spectrum, and don't regard you know maybe have come to Buddhism because it's actually been a relief from the faith traditions. You're not asked to believe something. You're not asked to believe in God or afterlife. But at the same time, as we practice, you know maybe you you inspired by somebody you knew. You know, some friend, some teacher, some mentor who embodied certain qualities. And for many people, it's seeing someone like the Dalai Lama who just radiates compassion. So to notice where faith arises for you. You know, it's why we have some of these Buddhist statues around and tankers and whatnot, because for some people that evokes that sense of reverence, but also a sense of possibility that this person like me was a human being. So out of faith, what, one of the things that faith supports is another spiritual faculty, 
um, called virya, which can translated these 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 Pali words are hard to translate, but they translate as effort, as uh, perseverance, as endeavor, as diligence. Right. This again another essential quality as we practice, particularly meditation, that it takes a certain amount of effort. Have you noticed? <laughs> day in, day out, the bell goes, oh no, not another sitting, oh, not another walking, oh no. Right? It requires a lot, you have to keep summoning up, you know, both your motivation and intention and effort to come back, you know, a million times in a day, each time your mind spaces out, each time your body is aching, each time you drift off into some slumberland, it takes effort to come back, right? to reassert that sense of presence, right? to wake up. Yeah. Just to get yourself into the Dharma hall sometimes is it's like moving through molasses. Or in your daily practice, to get out of bed when it's all cozy and comfortable, it's dark outside and the bell rings at five and the, yeah, the alarm goes off at 5 a.m., it takes a lot of uh, devotion, actually, to your practice. And sometimes will, sometimes remembering why you're practicing, but sometimes just a sense of that, I'm just, you know, through hell or high water, I'm going to sit every day. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's an essential quality. And the Buddha talked a lot about the, use, the skillful use of effort yeah, and balanced effort. Right? And so one of the things we learn to develop in meditation, particularly in retreat, is how to practice with balanced effort. So the Buddha, in a couple of different places in, the, in, the, in his life, was talking to different uh, monks who were musicians, um, and uh, one particular musician, monk, uh, was, um, was getting really tight and rigid in his, in his meditation. Anybody, that happened to anybody, get tight, and you know, I'm going to get that breath, and I'm going to nail it, and I'm going to... I'm not going to get distracted, right? But you, you know, there's only so much. There's only so far we can get with will, right? We kind of burn out. We get too tight. We get we get tense. We get knotted stomach. I said, you know, I remember getting really knotted stomach because I again I had that too much willfulness, too much zeal, but it was imbalanced. There wasn't enough relaxation, spaciousness. So the Buddha says to this monk Sony, he says, "What do you think when the strings of your lute?" were neither too taut nor too loose, but tuned to be but tuned to be right on pitch. Was your lute in tune and playable? In the same way, Sony, over-aroused persistence and effort leads to restlessness. Over-slack energy and effort leads to laziness. Thus, you should determine the right pitch for your persistence. Attune the pitch of the five faculties and, and pick up from there. So to track what, what, where your energy is, right? And is, the, is there a tightness in it? That, for me, that's the indicator. If there's tightness, then so how can you invite some relaxation, some softening of the belly, some unfurring of the brow, right? But if there's not enough effort, what happens? We go into, you know, that um, um, stupid mind, sinking mind. Anyway, it's just, we just kind of sits really cozy and I'll just wait for the bell. <laughs> it feels really good for a while. <laughs> you know, but it's not what we're doing here, which is we're cultivating wakefulness and brightness and clarity in support of insight.
So I think of people like the Dalai Lama, Spring was reminding us, she just watched a, uh, um, a lovely um, video about the, the, the Dalai Lama from sunrise to sunset, about his 24 hours in his life that I was looking at today. And um, he still practices three or four hours a day. You know, he's been practicing like that for the last mm, 50, 60 years. Right? He didn't just pop out this amazing, compassionate world leader. I mean, maybe he did, but I, I, I think that the, the, the practice over those decades is partly what allows his heart to be so, so magnificent. Yeah? One of my favorite stories of this, this the, the, the sort of heroic side of effort of virya is a wonderful Tibetan teacher called Shabkar Rinpoche, who was a renowned uh, teacher from the 18th century, beautiful um, teachings. And one of the things he used to do in his early days of his practice, um, as did many of his uh, fellow uh, meditators, was they would, uh, there was an island um, uh, on a lake that they would go to. So they would go, they would cross over to the lake in winter when the ice was frozen. And they'd have they carry a, a sack of barley flour, which is pretty much what they existed on, and then gathered you know local herbs and roots and things. Um, and then in the summer, the lake would um, melt, so the ice the, the ice would melt, and so they couldn't get a, they couldn't get across. They had to wait till the next year until the lake froze before they could leave their retreat. So <clears throat> that was a year. <laughs> The winters are long into about 12,000 feet. So that's, that's virya, that's hardcore effort. Right? If, we, if, we froze, if we melted the, <laughs> created a moat around Spear Rock <laughs> and you couldn't get off for a few months. <laughs> right? So that's, that's, the, that's one end of, of the, you know, when people get, have such faith and devotion and, 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 and zeal, right? it can manifest in that. I mean, I've had, you know, Years where pretty much all I've done is done meditation retreats, long meditation retreat after long meditation retreat, because of that desire, the zeal for practice and for awakening, wanting to know that for myself, and it's a beautiful thing. And if you have the if you have the means and the conditions and the support of the supportive environment to do that, then do it. You know, those conditions are impermanent, like everything else. But it may be, look something like like I have a student who I've worked with for many many years. And um, he's got four, had four young children. He's a CFO of a hedge fund in the city and had very, very little time because his job was very demanding and his home life was very demanding. But he was really committed to the practice. And uh, so he would get up at five in the morning or 4.30 in the morning every day to meditate for 30, 45 minutes before uh, driving into the city, see his kids. And that was his practice. So, so it doesn't mean you have to go off to to an island in Tibet, and you know, but it can mean different things. Yeah. So, um, again, just to reiterate, uh, this quality of effort is balanced. Right. So, just like that metaphor of the lute or the guitar strings, right? To track for yourself when is your effort too slack that you're just kind of spacing out and not even getting out of your room for the meditation. You're just kind of, you know, rearranging the, you know, your suitcase and whatever we do or just an extra nap or two, right? 
to, um, you know, or you're just not being able to kind of feel the breath because the attention's too slack? And when is it too tight? You know, so some of you are very zealous and very rigorous in your practice, but there may be a little tightness, right? And to track your body, to track where there's tension, where there's a sense of willfulness and tightness in the practice, right? And, and of course, there's no, there's, no, there's no exact middle line balance, right? We're always correcting in our practice, a little too loose, so we step up the energy, a little too much energy, we get restless, so we calm down, but we calm down and we get sleepy again, so we up the energy and then we get balance, and then we, and the bell goes, and then something else happens. Right? So it's a constant monitoring, not over-vigilant, but just, you know, th- then that's, that's the meta-attention aspect of mindfulness that tracks right? when we're in balance. So there's a lovely line from a teacher that I studied with Sogni Rinpoche, who talked about, you know, cultivating the quality of, of virya, but in this, from this balanced place of, he called it out of discipline. So you follow the form, you follow the schedule, you show up for the practice, but you do it with inner spaciousness, out of discipline, inner spaciousness. So to hold that as a as a reference point for your practice, what's it like to practice with inner spaciousness, the sense of lightness and ease but also dedicated focus and precision. So it's a lovely thing to uh, bear in mind. Goodness me, look at the time. So as we develop wise effort, virya, what that supports is the fourth of the faculties, uh, concentration, samadhi. This, I prefer the word samadhi, this gathered, unified, collected mind. This, 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 this gathered attention. Sometimes it's translated as a beautiful mind. Right? Where the mind, the, 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 the mind heart is steady, present, relaxed, focused, absorbed. Right? It's, it's hard to knock the mind off balance because there's a sense of resiliency and poise. Right? And at times you know this from your own experience. Sometimes you're, you're in the meditation and uh, some factors of concentration are there, some relaxation, one-pointedness and contentment and the sense of, oh, I could, I could, I could uh, sit here forever. Oh, maybe I could just stay here forever. Maybe I could just move into Spirit Rock. Maybe I could become a monk. You know, people have all these fantasies. You know, often we spend more time thinking about our next retreat than being on retreat. Well, if I get here for a month, oh, that would be amazing. You know, I get really deep and vast and open, and you know. And then what have we? Just thinking, and then we get agitated. It's like, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to leave my job, and uh, you know. And then all our samadhi goes out the window. You know, very easy to do. So we're developing different kinds of samadhi here. So we're developing both a one-pointed samadhi, where you know, in the first couple of days we were just emphasizing the breath, and, and much to the exclusion of a lot of other things. Right? So there's a certain seclusion of samadhi when it's one-pointed, and some of you are doing more of that practice. And then there's also what's called a kinaka samadhi, which is moment-to-moment samadhi, where we're just present to whatever's arising in the moment. 
So sometimes it's the breath, but it may be a sound. It may be sound, breath, sensation, feeling, thought, breath, sound, sensation, thought, feeling, image, feeling, thought. And we're just there moment to moment to moment to moment. It can be an unbroken quality of poise and presence. So we can be as, 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 the samadhi can be as deep as we're sitting in stillness as it can be walking down to the dining room, just tracking every single aspect of our experience. And one of the things I always find interesting uh, when I first learned this is the proximate cause for concentration is happiness. Not will, not furrowed brows, not grim determination, but happiness or contentment. So when you, if, if there's a desire for more of that you know, gathered mind to also uh, look for the quality of contentment, because that's often the doorway. Ajahn Chah was once asked, what level of concentration do you need to develop insight? Because the point of this practice is to develop insight. And there's different schools of thought in this. And some meditation traditions and Vipassana traditions emphasize a lot more insight, a lot more concentration to develop insight. From his perspective, he said, you need as much concentration as it takes to read a book. Am I feeling collective sigh of relief going around the room? Right. Although now that we, you know, we, we um, you know, we spend so much time on our phones and we, we, we read things for about ten seconds if we're lucky, and then we're on to the next thing. Actually, the concentration it takes to read a book now is actually quite a high level of concentration. <laughs> but the point is, you know, it, it's a relaxed, focused attention right? to track our experience, as the Buddha said uh, in in the Satipatthana Sutta uh, in the refrain. He said. Um, uh, the meditator uh, is mindful to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and attention. Right? We're, we're paying attention to the breath and the body and feelings and thoughts and whatnot. The extent necessary, the extent necessary for bare knowledge and attention to see what's true, to see the truth of our experience moment to moment. There's another quote from uh, Achan Chah where he says. Um, Someone was asking him about sitting in meditation um, in life, and maybe I won't be able to read this because I can't find my glasses. Now here they are. And he says, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. <laughs> Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning, continue until you fall asleep at night. Don't be concerned about how long you sit, what is important is only that you keep watchful whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. So, so we develop faith, we develop mindfulness, we develop effort, we develop concentration in service of what? In service of what? In service of awakening, in service of huh? wisdom, yeah in service of insight, clarity, knowing, understanding our experience, so we can understand the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness, as Howie spoke to the other night. That is the point of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through, 
to understand our experience, to understand the truth so we can see clearly, so we can unbind ourselves from the way that we get entangled in emotional, psychological, and mental suffering. That is why we're doing this practice, to free the heart, to free the mind. So the fifth faculty is the development of wisdom. And often the, 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 it's framed in, in the text as satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. Right? The mindfulness is in service of clarity and wisdom, of knowing, of knowing the truth. And one of the proximate causes for wisdom to arise is this balanced, poised mind of samadhi. Because when our mind's busy and chattery and restless and worrying and planning our to-do list and you know a holiday and worrying about what we said to so-and-so and all of that, there's not much chance for insight to arise. Even if an insight did arise, it would get so swept up in the maelstrom of thoughts, we wouldn't even notice it. We go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, what about that? And where's my coffee? And no, 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 no. Right? So as we get calmer and clearer and stiller, when we do see clearly, when we do have a moment of, of, of depth, of perception, of presence, right, it lands. And it could be something very ordinary as, um, you know, you walk outside from the meditation and it seemed like nothing was happening in the meditation, but you, you are cultivating these qualities of presence and concentration and whatnot. And you look outside and you see, um, you know, you see the... Um, the moss on the tree, you know, you see some of the dying limbs of the trees and the beautiful oak tree out there. And you, and you have a profound insight into the nature of change, the nature of transience, or the nature of beauty, or the nature of silence. Or you're just quietly minding your own business, walking along, stepping, 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 and there's just awareness naturally rising of movement. And then there's a sense of there's no one walking. There's just the body is walking itself. The steps are stepping by themselves. There's nobody home. There's just bodily life being seen in awareness happening by itself. No me, no my, no I. Just phenomena, just nature happening by itself. So at times we have those kind of perceptions. And when, when the mind is, has some stillness and some quiet and some presence, it lands, it lands in this fertile soil and it takes root and it has a profound shift in our being. That the, the way that we've so clung to a sense of identity and me and I'm doing it and I'm the meditator and I'm special and I'm this and that, and we see that's just a construct of thoughts and the whole sandcastle crumbles and it completely radically changes our whole experience of life from there on in. That can happen in any moment. Any moment. And that's why we do this practice. To see the truth of things. So, just some of the things that can arise in this aspect of wisdom is that we might see the process of identification. How we, we, we're sitting in meditation, the breath is coming and going, and thoughts are coming and going, and we're, the mindfulness is, is really established, and we just see 
that these thoughts are coming and going by themselves. They're not me, they're not mine. What's really painful is when we take these thoughts to be who I am, right? Because it's kind of like not very pretty in there, is it? It's, I mean, the mind is, has no shame, and it will think any thought about anyone at any time. And if you think they're yours, you, it's a setup for misery, right? Did, how many thoughts did you will into being? How many thoughts did you say, I'm going to think that terrible thought about that person? You know, that judgment about the yogi who's coughing too loud. No, it just popped up. Like, it's not yours. It just, it's just the conditions coming and going. So when we see that, when we start to disidentify, then we just see all these, these emotions that come through, these fears and anxieties and, and, and grief and loss. And, and they're not yours, they're just part of the body and mind doing its thing. Or sometimes we see the, uh, uh, the way that we add, to, the, add, the layers that we add to our suffering, what the, the Buddha called the second dot. You know, we're sitting, you know, some of you reported of feeling very strong feelings of grief and loss and sadness. And that's hard enough as it is. And then the mind comes in and says, well, you should be over this already. That, that happened year, like years ago. Why are you still crying? Right? And we, we pound on suffering with judgment and it's painful. Right? So we can see, as, as we get more clear, we can see, oh, the way the mind can really... Uh, torture itself, torture ourselves. Or the way that we believe in the reality of time. You know, we, we get into meditation, you know, it's you know, six, what time do we start meditating in the morning? It's early, 6.30, right? We sit down and it's already like, it's a, it's a really difficult meditation. And we look at our watch and it's 6.34. It's like, oh no, God, I hate this place. <laughs> I hate meditation, I hate spirit rock, I hate that teacher, and I'm going to leave. And I know it's going to be a horrible day because it's only been four minutes and it already sucks and my knees are already hurting and I want, you know. And then, we, then, and then it becomes horrible because we think, oh my God, the whole day is going to be like this. It's just going to be one long, sucky, shitty day. And then we, if we believe that reality of time and future, it's misery. If we just see it as like, oh, that's a painful thought. Who knows? I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have my my legal coffee that I snuck in for breakfast, and then the chocolate, which I also illegally snuck in, and and then you know, it's all going to be great after that. You know, and in life changes. You see some bambies flocking around in the grasses, and then you suddenly you're in love with everything, right? And it's like the best day you've ever had, right? And that's it's only seven o'clock, you know. So to see the way that we create suffering, this is, this is the faculty of wisdom. To see the ways that we cause suffering, to see the ways that, that peace is available. Yeah. To see the ways that we're in contention with reality, as how we spoke about in the Four Noble Truths. Right? The way that we, you know, every moment receiving experience, and depending on our attitude and our relationship is the cause for either ease or misery. Yeah. Whether it's knee pain or sadness or who knows what. So in every moment we have the capacity to find a place of ease and peace, freedom. So like with the sounds here, you know, 
I mean, it's not that loud. We thought it was going to be much louder with all the mechanical sounds and the digging and all of that. And, um, you know, and that can, you know, we can cause a lot of drama in our minds about the sounds, whether it's those sounds or the sounds in your head or sounds of people breathing too loudly that you want to kill, you know. Um, you think I'm laughing about the killing. You think I'm joking about the killing thing, but, you know, sometimes you have a loud breather next to you and you do want to kill them, you know. Um, and again, to see, and, and what's so great about practice is, you know, we're getting out of the blame game. We're, 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 we're looking at how we normally put the, the blame outside. Well, if only this person shut up, if only this political party disappeared, if only my partner was nicer to me, if only my knee pain would go away, I'd be happy. And then we, we start to see, oh, the suffering is actually most, the torment is in my mind. And, and the, 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 the mindfulness practice is, is this incredible gift that gives us access to clarity and also to equanimity. One of the things you're developing here is equanimity. So yesterday I was standing at my, at my, in my room, I, 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 I have a standing kind of desk in my room, and... Um, and I leant down, I bent down to get something on the floor and my knee just kind of went, I don't know what happened, but it was incredibly painful, it's still incredibly painful. And um, I thought, you know, I just had my 49th birthday and I thought, God, I'm becoming an old man, I can't even bend down <laughs> without, <laughs> so really hurting myself. Anyhow, so the last 24 hours has been really painful in walking and bending down. But I see how the practice, like, I see how what the practice has done for me is that I'm not in contention with that. I don't want it, I don't like it, but it's how it is. And so there's not, there's not a struggle with it in my mind. Right? And, I could, and I could have been, I could have blamed myself, oh, I, why did you bend down like that? You should have been more mindful, blah, blah, blah. You know, bend down as you do and the body does what it does. And there can be peace in relationship to it, in the smallest things and the biggest things. So this is what we're training here. Similarly, the way that we can uh, summon forth kindness. Right? Another beautiful thing, we're talking about suffering and its causes and, then, and happiness in its causes. One of the beautiful things that we can develop here in practice is the, the capacity of compassion and kindness and how liberating that is to suddenly be with ourselves with care and affection and befriending rather than hostility and judgment and abandonment. Right? Very radical orientation. And the more that we can embrace our experience, our pain, our difficulty, with warmth, with friendliness, right? it makes the whole thing so much easier. It might not take the pain away. It doesn't take my knee pain away. But if I can hold it with tenderness, it's so much more bearable. So we'll talk more in the coming days about how uh, the practice reveals, cultivates insight, wisdom. Because I mean, really, it's one of the main elements we're developing here is, is the wisdom element. Seeing the truth of our experience, seeing the truth of change, seeing the truth of how we condition suffering upon suffering through our mind, through our reactivity, through our judgments. Yeah, through our spinning of our, the web of stories, what the Buddha calls papancha, 
the proliferation of mind. And when we start seeing that and we start abiding in this, in this refuge of awareness, and we see that it's just, it's just this show that's going on that I can be either be for our welfare or for our misery, there's a lot of possibility for freedom. So over time, these faculties become powers. Right? They become these really buoyant refuges of faith, where, where the, the faith becomes unshakable, where concentration, our samadhi, becomes more accessible. Yeah. Where our effort becomes somewhat, uh, there's a beautiful phrase, um, uh, uh, it's actually, the phrase is unstoppable liberation, but it, there's a sense of where the effort is becomes effort, it becomes effortless effort is the phrase I was looking for. Um, where we just automatically orient towards waking up, towards being present, because to not do that is a, is, a, is a diminished existence, which supports this gathering of mind, which supports wisdom, and supports the heart opening. So... I am so happy that you're all here to be able to have time to explore and develop these qualities. And I'm so happy to be here with you to also really bathe in the field of this exploration. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Maybe just for as a reflection, just call to mind something that inspires faith in you. Maybe recalling what it was that motivated you to come here, or some person that inspires you. Maybe it's the Buddha, some story of the Buddha, just, just something that contacts that fen- sense of faith. And then maybe even the faith spills into devotion. Very wholesome quality in the mind it allows a sense of receptivity and op- openness. May we all awaken the five faculties of awakening. We'll be walking in half an hour and some chanting. No, we'll be walking now and some sitting and chanting in half an hour. Thanks. <laughs>